0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey!
3: All right, it's generally said that science was invented by the Greeks. Guys like Aristotle, he had only one name, but he addressed important questions, such as the structure of the
0: universe. So clearly, the Earth is at the center of the cosmos, and the Sun and the planets revolve around it in perfect circles. Say, Aphrodite, could you pass the souvlaki?
2: But Aristotle had to do the science in his head. He had no instruments, no telescopes or microscopes, cameras, microphones, no strain gauges, whatever they are. In other words, he couldn't do any experiment that involved using anything more than his own senses.
3: Well, 25,000 years later, things got better. There were sensors. No, not the kind that keep your kids from seeing bad things in the movies. Sensors that can measure things that we would otherwise never notice and turn our impressions of what we
2: see, for example, with our eyes into hard data. Sensors like photographic plates. And by 1900, there were thousands of photos showing the spectra of stars, small glass plates each recording a star's rainbow.
3: Annie Cannon of the Harvard Observatory examined those glass sensors, those glass plates, Classified them, took the first step toward understanding how stars work.
2: Okay, this one's strong helium lines looks like another B star. Say, Joey, could you get me another cup of that chowder?
3: I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science. Today, every experimental scientist uses sensors, and sometimes they're very sensitive, able to detect bits of matter that we think might be there, but we don't really know.
3: Recently, a sensor success prompted this reaction. (laughs) Physicists around the world gave out a whoop when it was reported that the world's largest and most expensive detection system seems to have glimpsed an elusive particle that could help us make sense of the
4: universe.
2: The Large Hadron Collider is a high-energy particle accelerator, 17 miles or 27 kilometers in circumference, at CERN in Switzerland. Physicists there have orchestrated more than 4,000 proton-to-proton collisions in the hope of detecting the Higgs boson. And now, the Great Cheer...
3: So, physicist Frank Close, success at last, or so it seems. We finally have a definitive answer on the Higgs. What is it?
5: Well, I don't know, and to be honest, nobody knows. Uh, what they are doing is analogous to throwing dice to see if you've got a load of dice. You know, if you throw a few times and you get sixes coming up, you might be suspicious. If you throw hundreds of times and the sixes keep coming up, you know for sure. I think CERN is somewhere between those two extremes at the moment. They've got the first tantalizing hints that there might be something going on, but for the moment, we don't know. Six months' time, maybe.
3: Okay, tantalizing hints. This is coming out of the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, how does it look for the Higgs? I mean, what does it do to actually look for this particle?
5: The, the Large Hadron Collider is smashing beams of protons together at incredibly high energies, recreating in the laboratory, in a small region of space for a brief moment, the sort of conditions that the universe itself experienced about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. According to our theories, that was the epoch when the Higgs boson was bubbling around and giving the properties to the particles and forces that enabled eventually, in our cold universe today, structures such as you, me, planets and galaxies and atoms to exist.
3: So what it's doing is it's smashing protons together in a tiny little region of space inside the collider, and because so much energy is involved, that creates new stuff, including maybe the Higgs?
5: That's the basic idea. So you surround the collision site with special cameras called detectors, which can record the entrails of whatever is produced in this mini-bang, and according to theory, once in a while, you will have produced a Higgs boson, which will decay, and you hope that in that once in a while you pick up the few particles that it's decayed into out of the hundreds of other particles that will also be there at the time. So it's really like looking for a needle in hundreds of haystacks.
3: All right, but there's some hint that there's a needle there. Uh, Is it any more than a hint? Does it tell us anything about what the Higgs might be like if we really do find it?
5: Uh, Yes, I think. There, There are two experiments, independent of each other, each of which has found some similar things. They have found some trails that would be consistent with a particle whose mass is about 125 times greater than that of a hydrogen atom. The fact that both experiments are finding a hint of something at the same sort of mass is the tantalizing feature. And so the teams involved at these two separate experiments are completely independent of one another, except insofar as the beams that uh, produce the collisions are common to both. So what they see is completely independent of one another. The way they do the analysis is also completely independent of one another. And if there is some real physics going on, what they will eventually find will be very much the same in both cases. To parallel Sherlock Holmes, he used to say to Dr. Watson, if two strange things happen, Watson, they're usually connected. So that's the sort of feeling that uh, maybe one of them is a little fluctuation, but both of them in the same place, hopefully is a sign for something.
3: Now, the Higgs boson gives things mass. Now first, Frank, is that really right, that without the Higgs, the stuff on my desk here would be massless?
5: No, and that's actually one of the common misconceptions. Most of the mass that you and I feel is locked up in the atomic nucleus. and um, The mass of the nuclear particles comes from the fact that the quarks, the deep seeds at the heart of the cosmic onion, are trapped. In a very very small region of space. That has nothing at all to do with this mass mechanism that Higgs members discovered. Their mechanism explains how the mass of fundamental things like the electron or the quarks themselves come about. So the mass of the electron emerges in their ideas and the mass of the electron is what determines in particular the size of atoms. So if the mass of the electron was different the size of atoms would be different In fact, if the electron had no mass at all, atoms wouldn't exist. So I actually prefer to think of the the Higgs mechanism, as it's called, as being the source of structure in the universe rather than the source of mass as such.
3: Well, you know, from a naive point of view, I'm listening to how the Higgs boson at least gives electrons their mass. It determines their mass. That's important. We wouldn't be talking about it otherwise. But how, do, you know, how does a particle give another particle mass? How does it you know, assure that that second particle has mass?
5: Well, the idea of the theory is that the vacuum is not empty. Well, we know that from quantum mechanics for a long time. But in the vacuum, in addition to familiar fields like gravitational fields, the electromagnetic field there's another field which has become known as the higgs field and when particles pass through that higgs field some of them feel a resistance if you like which slows them down and it is that which we interpret as mass.
3: It's a, so it's sort of like molasses giving you inertia, as it were. If you had to wade through the in my office here, then, you know, I'd have a lot more inertia.
5: That, that's a, a way of thinking about it, but it's a very profound source of molasses that manages to hide itself from all prying eyes.
3: Well, finally, Frank, let me just ask this. Physicists erupted in cheers with this latest tantalizing news about the Higgs. When is the last time you recall that physicists cheered a result?
5: <laughs> That's a good question. I remember certainly in the, well 1983 when the W and Z bosons, the carriers of the weak force, were finally discovered. That was the moment when experiments showed that the electromagnetic force and the weak force are indeed two versions of a more profound unified thing we now call the electroweak force. Um, that was a remarkable moment. I think that was a moment that I do remember people cheering. There have been others, but they don't happen very often.
3: (laughs) All right. Well, Frank Close, thank you so much for talking to me about this latest result about the Higgs. Thank
2: you. Oxford University is where physicist Frank Close makes his home. He's the author of The Infinity Puzzle, Quantum Field Theory, and the Hunt for an Orderly Universe. The Hunt for the Higgs Boson goes on. Will we find it? It's a mystery. A mystery for Sam Space.
3: I walked into the office a little after midnight. I've been keeping these hours ever since the Morelli case when she left me for the fry cook with a slump pay and a bankroll that kept half the city's coppers and
0: cabbage. I just tipped the bottle, Wynn. Hey, Sam, look what I found down on 49th. Never saw her before, but she said she needed to talk to you. Bad.
2: I have information you can use.
3: Okay, I'll take it from here, Costellini. Thanks.
0: She's a mystery, Sam. And she's all
3: yours.
2: You're Sam Space. Do I know you? You do. You just don't know it yet. Mind if I sit down?
3: I'm not stopping you. And you're not stopping me from saying hello to this corned liquor.
2: You'll want to ask me questions.
3: Is that so? She was a mystery. Direct, coy, forceful, but elusive. A dame like this was hard to find. And
2: trouble I didn't need. My name is Higgs. Should I be interested? I have inside information, Sam. You'll find that I'm quite a catch. Who says I'm fishing? Let's just say that any particle moving through space has to interact with me.
3: (laughs) Sounds like you're well connected. Higgs, you said? Higgs boson? That's right. The missing mass, is that the skinny?
2: Without me, the standard model is incomplete.
3: That's so? (laughs) A lot of people have been looking for you, Higgs. Call me Higgsy. A lot of very smart people have been looking for you, Higgsy. if that really is your name. You're the subject of a lot of debate. It's
2: mostly theoretical. Some
3: say you don't exist.
2: Let's just say I have a knack for getting around without being noticed, Sam.
3: I didn't buy what she was selling. You're the one that gives particles mass?
2: And energy. Smoke?
3: I could see that any particle colliding with her would never be the same. So it all comes together like that? It's too convenient.
2: No, it's unified. They don't need to know that though, Sam, but they're closing in on me. I haven't kept them guessing this long to let them find me now.
3: I'm listening.
2: Keep them off me, Sam, and I'll dish on standard model particles that you've never even heard of. Deal?
3: Look, Hegsy, I can't keep them chasing their tails like a mutt in the rain, even if I wanted to.
2: But you're my last hope.
3: Sorry, doll. When they find you, they're going to book you.
5: On
2: what? Mingling and evading detection? Maybe. Charges won't stick, Sam. Not on me.
3: I'm calling you a cab.
2: I thought you were smarter than that, Sam.
3: Hello? Sam Space here. Can you send a car to the corner of 52nd and the park? Oh, cancel that. She's gone took the run out. It's no matter. Poor kid. She's on the lam, but there's no hiding. No one goes undetected in this city. Not for very long. Few things go undetected anywhere anymore, and if you feel you're suffering from sensory overload, well, that's nothing, says electrical engineer and computer scientist Jan Rabai. Ubiquitous sensors is the phrase that computer scientists are using to describe a world blanketed with tiny detection devices.
6: Sensors will be everywhere. Sensors will be built into the environment. Everywhere around you will be on your body, in your clothes, maybe maybe even inside your body. That's the idea of sensing, and they're all going to be connected to some wireless or wired connectivity.
2: But sensors are everywhere, aren't they? I mean, they're not in my clothes right now, mm-hmm. and, and I don't think there are any inside of me. I hope not. Mm-hmm. But don't we already live in a world where sensors are everywhere?
6: Absolutely. Uh, there's plenty of sensors around. But think about this uh, so you have them everywhere. Right? You go in traffic, you drive around, there's cameras on traffic lights, there's things in the streets. There's your house has sensors, there's a thermostat. But now think about multiplying this with a factor of a hundred or a thousand. That instead of having a single thermostat in your home, you might have temperature sensors in every room. Uh, Sensors that basically measure if somebody is in the room, turn the lights on and off, and so on and so forth. So suddenly you go from one kind of expensive thing here and there to sensors everywhere.
2: Now, sensors in our clothes, why would I want sensors on my clothes?
6: Well, a very good example already is today you can actually buy little gadgets which allow you to do ECG monitoring. Uh, You have a little patch, you put it on your body, and you can basically look at your heart rate. Uh, For uh, people who basically have heart problems, that would be an interesting thing to do. Now, rather than putting those patches on, wouldn't it be better if I have a shirt that has those things built in? Or that it allows me to go running and monitor a number of vital signs?
2: Well, what does it take to get from where we are now with sensors to the world that you're envisioning where sensors are everywhere? I mean, we need very, very small sensors to do that to begin with, I would assume.
6: That's correct. So there's a couple of factors that have to basically happen. Number one, we have to build sensors which are really tiny. They have to be also very energy efficient. Uh, You don't want to have batteries on those things because you would have to replace hundreds of batteries all the time. This doesn't work. So they either get the energy from your motion, or from light, or from whatever uh, source of energy. That's called energy harvesting. Uh, the other option is to have energy beamed at it, like for instance, if I would do some implantables, uh, you can actually use wireless technology to beam power at a node to power it up. Like for instance, you do it uh, cochlear implants today or with some other implant devices that are already existing. So this is a variety of sources of energy. So we have to improve on that, how to provide the energy. The third one is the network. They have to be connected. Otherwise, if a sensor on its own that sits somewhere doesn't do anything, it's useless. So you need connectivity. And the majority of the cases will be wireless. Now, can you imagine having thousands of wireless devices trying to talk to each other, and doing it in such a way that it always works, that's very reliable, that it basically meets any type of concern about health type of issues and so on and so forth. All those type of things are interesting challenges.
2: Now, some of the other examples of where these sensors would be, I understand, are in paint, for example, Mm -hmm. on bridges, uh, in trees, in our medicine bottles. Am I exaggerating when I come up with this list? Is this the list that you have in your mind?
6: Absolutely, and it's actually a lot broader than that. So, indeed, you mentioned bridges. Anything that basically allows us to do infrastructure monitoring, right? You have large structures, buildings, you have bridges, anything that helps us to figure out the structural health and evolution of those structures over time, let's say in case of earthquakes, what's happening, would be very interesting. Agriculture, very important, right? The capability of number one, for instance, you have a vineyard to be able to figure out individually the different plants, how much uh, irrigation they're getting or how mature the grapes already are. Are they close to being picked or not? It's very interesting. So you actually can almost start to uh, customize where you're gonna pick your grapes and so on. Uh, And there's uh, applications going on in terms of obviously traffic monitoring to figure out where do cars drive, how do they drive there, and so on and so forth. And actually, it's not as hard as it seems like because everybody has already a set of sensors on them. Like you have your cell phone, your cell phone has GPS. GPS, you can track where cars go, how fast they go, and so on and so forth. You have a perfect idea of traffic. Indeed, medical bottles, uh, medicine bottles, all those kinds of things are uh, all opportunities.
3: Hang on to your hats or get a sensor to tell you where your hat is and then hang on to it. We'll continue our conversation with Jan Rabai in a moment. It's sensor sensibility on Big Picture Science we continue with Molly's conversation with Jan Rabai about ubiquitous sensors.
6: So my scenario, I actually have a good name for it. I call it the swarm, <laughs> swarms of sensors. So you have to imagine that you're surrounded on your body, around you. What can that enable? And, and imagine that all those things are connected, that I actually can start thinking about a capability of adding, I would say, census to the internet. The internet right now, the way you interact with it is display, it's a keyboard, it's a mouse typically, and maybe touch today with all the smartphones. If I would have sensors all around me, I would have input and output devices all around me, why should I still carry a mobile? It should be possible for me to interact with information just through motion, tactile, whatever smell. So we don't need those devices anymore.
2: Can you give me a specific example, just an example of some information that would, we'd want to collect and network that way?
6: I wake up in the morning, and I go to the bathroom you have your mirror the mirror is an interface device i could actually project information on that mirror which basically would say gee what's the weather today and how does the traffic look like to work and maybe there's messages so rather than for me to go to my computer i actually make a keyboard display on the mirror and i interact with that keyboard again through touch which is a set of sensors that allow me to enter some result or whatever basically query some information that's an example so I don't need anything. It's actually all around me. I don't need to carry anything. It allows me to interact with the latest that's going on by just purely having that this immersion in the sensory world.
2: Is the immersion in the sensory world necessarily an advantage? I mean, I could see how some people might feel that I don't want to be immersed in the swarm. I don't want sensors recording everything that I do. And I don't know if there's an advantage to dictating my memos in the bathroom when I could just go into my study and sure. and get onto a computer. So what is the advantage of this world?
6: Well, there's a variety of them, right? And, and, and I fully agree there's also every positive side is always something which could be negative. Right? That's always true with that. Whatever technology you talk about, that's always the case. So indeed, you have privacy issues, there's security concerns, all those type of things that happen. But at the same time, it's ease of use. If you've seen, you look at the last 10 years and what happened with the evolution of how we made information available to a broad range of people, just the ease of use, the ease of accessing information opens it up to much larger Community. I look at the tablets, for instance. How many more people now suddenly, elderly people, people who had, we have handicaps, or basically, they have suddenly access to things they didn't have before. Through very simple interfaces, you don't have to worry about a complex device that you have to carry with you. Now you say, I want to get interactive information. I basically can do this on the fly in the most. I would say, logical way of doing it. As I said, we're basically trained to deal with computers through very arcane interfaces. Let's get rid of that training and really start rethinking the way we do interfacing.
2: So so right now, you and I are talking face-to-face, which mm-hmm. I appreciate that you're not a computer hologram, that mm-hmm. I actually get to meet you. What sensor sensory information do you wish you had right now about the world out there? So sitting here with me, you could access what if it were available? Right.
6: What I would like to do, for instance, just in this conversation, I would like to be able to pull up some examples, right? Rather than just be sitting here and says, well, we just use voice to communicate, right? I could basically pull up a whole bunch of data, interesting type of examples, out of the sky, basically, without having to go to a computer or anything like that. I just can project it for you. Think about this. You might even just think about it, and it pops up there, right there on your wall, maybe in 3D. So the opportunity to really get very quick ideas and very quick impressions of how something could look like is I think is absolutely stunning. And, and there's the opportunities for those type of things. Think about architects, think about artists, if they could do this type of thing. It's amazing what they could create. They could live in their world of art.
2: Those are such lofty ideas. I was thinking I could get my oven to preheat now while I'm sitting with you, and by the time I get home, I could stick a pizza oh, yeah, that's in. That's
6: easy. That's easy. That's going to be happening anytime now. now. If you want to, you can already buy this type of things.
2: <laughs> Jan Rabai, thank you so much for speaking with us.
6: You're welcome. Thank you.
3: Jan Rabai is a professor in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences Department at the University of California, Berkeley. Okay, well, our computers can do a lot, Sensors are cheap, ubiquitous. And you know this got me thinking about one form of detection that we've not yet been able to do: pass smells through the Internet.
2: Now Seth, why is this interesting to you?:
3: Well, uh, I think it's the teenage boy in me because I can think of lots of really <laughs> interesting applications for that. but you know, there's the perfume industry, or Pizza parlors, for that matter. I mean, imagine you're sitting at your computer as the smell of a fresh pepperoni comes wafting through.
2: Well, I don't know about the pizza industry, but it turns out that the perfume industry would be interested in sending smells over the Internet. If only we knew how to do so. Writer Barry Schell has written about the science of olfaction for Scientific American. And he says that when it comes to nose detection, nobody knows how the nose knows.
1: I guess one of the reasons it's so hard to figure out is because it's so old, it's had the longest time to get perfected by nature. So it's the most complicated, maybe, or the mechanism must be the most complicated of all the senses.
3: Well, are there any theories? I mean, taste, they say, comes down to a small handful of basic tastes, sweet, sour, salt, whatever they are. And those combine to make all the tastes that we know about Could not maybe a similar theory work with smell? Maybe there are only a couple of basic smells? Well,
1: there's 350-something different kind of receptors in our nose, but we don't know exactly what they're doing. Okay, so the molecules come in. They think it's the shape of the molecule or maybe just the shape of an end or a part of a molecule, or there's another theory that it's the vibrations of the molecule, or maybe it's both the shape and the vibration, or maybe it's something we we haven't figured out yet.
3: So, when you say the shape, that's kind of intriguing. What you're saying is if I take a molecule of, I don't know, some, you know, Chanel number no. five, here it well, is. Well,
1: Chanel number no. five's got a hundred different things in it, but let's say the basic smell of a strawberry is, you know, there's a strawberry kind of molecule that smells like strawberry. You know, it's an organic molecule, so it's made of carbons, mostly carbon, hydrogens, and a little bit of oxygen, and, you know, there might be a nitrogen in there, but it's probably mostly just carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, and they're organized in certain ways with things, what's called alcohols and ketones and ethers and these sorts of things. They're just organic chemistry shapes.
3: Let's consider that. There's a funny-looking molecule, and and this is the strawberry molecule. If you filled a room with a bunch of these guys, people would say, yeah, there's strawberries in this room. But, But the shape theory is saying that sort of fits in to one of the receptors in our nose and we say, ah, strawberries. So it's just a mechanical match.
1: Yeah, that's the theory, although it might be like a whole bunch of different receptors. So there might be one end of the strawberry molecule goes into one receptor, another end goes into another, or maybe, I don't know. The fact is nobody knows how it works.
3: Well, are there legions of white lab-coded researchers around the world pursuing this problem, or, <laughs> or do people just not consider it very interesting?
1: No. I mean, you know, the perfume industry, is a 5 billion a year industry, so there's sure lots of interest. I think it's just an extremely hard problem, and people have been working on it, mm, gosh, probably almost a 100 years, well, 50 years for sure.
3: Suppose we could really understand how smells work. I mean the first thing you do is you build a smellometer or something, you know. There's some box you carry around, you know, you, you read the dial and it might say, you know, twenty percent strawberry, forty percent skunk, and thirty percent Chanel number no. two or something. But if if you had one of these things, I mean what sort of practical applications would there be? Because I could imagine it might actually be useful for, I don't know, solving crimes or who knows what
1: they ever get this, I'm sure there will be amazing applications like you can't even imagine. Because you have to realize that this business of being able to detect molecules in your environment is the most primitive sense of all. And don't forget, it also includes, uh, you know, pheromones and, and all this stuff, which is also poorly understood.
3: When I was a kid, I remember people were touting the imminent arrival of smellovision. vision yeah. What kind of smells were they trying to use for smellovision? vision do, do you remember?
1: You know, someone peels an orange so you can smell the orange.
3: Well, we never had smell-o-vision unless you count popcorn or the guy next to you who hasn't bathed for a while. But the problem that I understood was stopping them from doing this was that smell is, you know, sort of a very slow sense. And they filled the the auditorium with one smell, but they couldn't get it out and get the next one in quickly enough uh, before the scene changed
1: that was a problem. There were quite a lot of other problems, like the bad smells would last too long, or people were annoyed by the smells, and it just turned out, it just was a good, a good idea that didn't work.
3: Smell did not sell. What would be your number one smell that you would like to uh, distribute to your friends?
1: Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's really hard to say, but I'm coming around to natural smells. You know, the whole perfume industry has gone synthetic, and there's actually a push to synthetics because natural products can be dangerous or you know they can cause allergies and things but listen to this today I just happened to be driving to work and I saw a guy cutting down a tree in his yard a big fir tree and he was piling it up by the side of the road and I pulled over and I said is that wood free and he said yeah so I filled the back of my car with this wood and I uh, just got into my car, and it just smelled so great. You know that smell of fresh-cut pine? My car is just full of that smell right now. And I thought at first, is that a perfume that spilled in my car? And then I realized, no, it's the wood. Such a beautiful smell.
3: <laughs> well, I guess that's one that everybody likes. It's sort of evergreen. Barry Shell, thank you very much for talking with me. Well, thanks.
2: Barry Shell is a writer in Vancouver, Canada.
3: Okay. But if they can figure smell out, if they can eventually build a sensor that would digitize odors, well, there are all sorts of things you could do. I mean, I can imagine a device that would light up if someone in the neighborhood was barbecuing a steak, or maybe a device to tell me if my pet peeking's needed a bath. Well, I can sort of do that anyhow. But even without this smellometer, sensors are getting really cheap, so cheap that non-scientists are getting into the act. Artists and tinkerers are using them to build their own sensor projects, including interaction designer Andy Huntington.
2: Andy's created a number of installations with sensor systems. For some of them, he's taken advantage of a small, inexpensive bit of computer hardware called an Arduino, a hand-sized little circuit board that will allow DYI sensor mania, which comes close to describing Andy's sound fountain.
7: This was really an exploration in creating fountains for public space. It records small sections of sound from a microphone and then it renders those as little bubbles that bounce around in essentially a container, which is a screen. Um, And these screens are set up in a sequence so that when one container fills up with sound, the bubbles fall off into another container.
3: So, I'm looking at a wall, and there's a microphone uh, up here on the you know on the wall to the left or whatever, and then there's a series of descending computer screens, if you will, that look like I'm looking into a tank of bubbles so yeah. I, I I make some sound, and then that causes some bubbles in the first screen to appear that eventually sort of fall, if you will, down into the other screens?
7: Yeah, that's correct. And the sounds are captured within the bubbles as well. So you end up with a very, a very fragmented record of time in the space. And what was quite nice was when we were installing this, we put it up the night before, and we came in the next day and found it full of the sound of hammering, lots of drilling, a little bit of swearing. So we had an understanding of the kind of things that had been going on in the space over time.
3: Yeah, fantastic. Now, of course, it does have a microphone. Uh, a, yeah. yeah. So that's a sound sensor as input. Do many of your interactive constructions use sensors?
7: You can't get away from sensors if you're doing interactive work, and I think sensors are massively important and interesting. The microphone's great because people overlook it in the same way that they do with cameras. Nobody ever thinks really of a, as a camera as a sensor, but we're beginning to see that more and more as we're looking at digital imaging, and particularly with things like the Kinect really kind of taking sort of weapons-grade sensors and putting them in people's living rooms.
3: Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the Kinect. This is actually a a device that was designed for uh, computer gaming at home, as
7: I recall. Yeah, so there's two things really that make the Kinect quite clever. There's a a normal standard camera, and there's also um, an infrared camera. So the combination of taking the invisible information and the color information gives you a huge amount of data. Now, the second clever thing is the software... Is able to interpret that data. So the classic example with the Kinect is the fact that it does um, something called um, skeleton tracking and so from understanding how you move in a space it can start to find the edges of your body and from that information it can project where your skeleton may be and from that skeleton information it can record how you move and through what's called gait recognition It enables you to say, ah, okay, you are Andy. You are Seth because you moved that way. You are Seth sitting down because your shoulders are the same distance apart. Um, So you can do really very sophisticated um, sensing and processing of the data. And so there the challenge, as far as interaction design is concerned, is how you do that without it feeling incredibly creepy.
3: This thing has eyes that not only see you but can recognize you, know where you are and what you're
7: doing, so it can do things with you. Yeah, precisely. So there are lots of games uh, from dancing through to sports games that enable people to play with it. And I think think the fact that it is a gaming device has meant that people aren't thinking, oh, this is surveillance technology.
3: You know, in a way, all these devices that take advantage of sensors are like, uh, I don't know, some sort of primitive life forms, which unlike stuff that's not alive, you know, a rock just sitting there, I mean, they have sensors. They can determine what the environment's like and how to react to that, and that's what makes them so interesting. Because we're interested in things that are alive, and if you put enough sensors onto something, maybe maybe it sort of acts like it's alive.
7: Mm, no, there's a there's a definite blurring of material when you're when you're starting to put systems that interact with each other. Now, do you use uh, what are called Arduino boards in any of your constructions? Maybe, maybe you should tell me what an Arduino is. Mm. Uh, the Arduino is a small device about the size of a credit card, which has a has a microprocessor on it. So it's a little computer board. Uh, essentially, yes. I think the, the one of the interesting things with Arduino is that it came out of a design school rather than from the electronics industry per se. So the emphasis has always been on education. And it's allowed a lot of people to get access to a very simple programming platform and sensing system in a way that they weren't able to do 20 years ago or so.
3: So you can hook up your sensors to an Arduino. I mean, these things are
7: not expensive, right? I mean, they're, they're... Yeah, it's about, about $25, I think. Yeah, okay. So
3: anybody who's sort of interested in doing something involving interactivity uh, can buy some inexpensive sensors, whatever they are, connect them up to an Arduino, do a little bit of uh, easy software programming or whatever. Yeah, and do something that twenty years ago, fifty years ago, would have been considered almost magic. Well, what have you done with an Arduino? Have you done any? Uh, you know, have you hooked anything interesting up to an Arduino?
7: Yeah, I, I use them quite a lot in the early stages of project development and also product development. They're a really great way of being able to test things out very quickly. Some of the classic things that people tend to do are using light sensors to play sound, so you get something that's a little bit like a theremin. That's always something that captivates people when they first turn on an Arduino. I use them for controlling lighting quite a lot. And with lighting, you can change the mood in a space quite spectacularly. So it's a very simple way of doing that with a system that doesn't cost four or
3: $500. I have to say, you know, just off the top of my head, it strikes me that it might be interesting to build a, a sort of a mob, a crowd, of whatever these devices are, something with you know microphones and that can change the lights or can sense where you are, and throw them into a room, and forget about having them interact with the visitors to a museum. Have them interact with one another. Have, have, oh, you, yeah. ever, have you
7: ever done that? No, um, I haven't done it myself, but there are plenty of people who are exploring um, swarms of robots at the moment. They're often very simple. There may be something as simple as um, line-following robots where you have a sensor that is a light sensor, which as it passes over either a black line or white space on a sheet of paper, it will follow the black line. And so if you create a device which has both the light sensor and also a pen on the back, then suddenly you've got device which is creating its own feedback loops and interacting with any number of other little swarming robots around it
3: sounds like a dog
7: chasing its tail yes yes (laughs) essentially it is and but that's quite entertaining to watch for a period of time
3: yes maybe even entertaining (laughs) for the dog i've never known but maybe so andy huntington i have to say it's been a delight to interact with you thank you very much
2: andy huntington is an interaction designer in london well, Seth, what sensory system would you attach to your computer besides the smellometer or the smellometer?
3: <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe something that would tell me whether it's really cloudy or not outside so that I could decide whether to haul my telescope out of the garage.
2: Yeah, they have something like that. It's called a window. Huh. I look through it sometimes.
3: Next, detection systems that are truly out of this world and out of the solar system. A planet hunting spacecraft finds a possibly Earth-like planet.
2: It's Sensor Sensibility on Big Picture Science.
3: Sensors, sensors everywhere, even off the planet. Highly advanced detection systems like Kepler allow us to find planets, even Earth-like planets, outside our solar system. And SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, in case you didn't know, is all about detection. The effort to pick up a radio signal from intelligent life elsewhere in the cosmos Now, if you sense that these are intriguing, important scientific endeavors, it's easy to support them by becoming a team SETI member at SETI.org. And remember, an email to the radio show staff at BigPictureScience at SETI.org will bring us to our senses and prompt us to send you a photo of our numerically small but morally large staff. SETI.org and BigPictureScience at SETI.org. Really, it's the sensible thing to do.
8: From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, And it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Goldilocks
3: was particular. And why shouldn't she be? I mean, who wants porridge that's ice cold or that burns the taste buds off your
2: tongue? So she'd understand why planet hunters who scan the skies for habitable planets won't settle for one that's too far from a star and it's an ice ball, or a planet that's so close to its sun that it's one giant roasted nut.
3: Yep, they want a planet in the Goldilocks zone just the right temperature range so that there could be liquid oceans or lakes on its surface.
2: Finding small planets that might be biofriendly is the mission of NASA's Kepler spacecraft. It's a giant planet-sensing telescope in orbit around our sun and far enough away from Earth that our own planet doesn't block its view.
3: Kepler is able to determine the size and the length of a year for planets around other stars by measuring how much those stars dim when the planets pass in front of them. Now, Kepler has found a lot of planets, more than 2,000 for sure.
2: But now, perhaps the perfect porridge, Kepler-22b, a planet that might very well be habitable, orbiting a sun-like star 600 light-years away from our own. Talk about remote sensing.
9: Kepler-22b is a milestone for Kepler because it's Kepler's first small planet in its star's habitable zone. Kepler-22b is about two and a half times the size of Earth, but we don't have a mass for Kepler-22b, so we don't know what Kepler-22b is made of. Is it a massive rocky planet with a thin atmosphere, or is Kepler-22b more like a mini-Neptune with a gas envelope around it that makes the surface too hot for life? We don't know.
3: Uh, The public, of course, would be interested to know if Kepler-22b or any of the planets that are presumably going to be found by Kepler in the future that look like they're promising from the standpoint of life, actually have life. How how could we possibly tell?
9: For planets in general, we want to look at the atmosphere and look for gases that are indicative of life. The Kepler planets are not amenable to follow-up because they're so far away and they're too faint. Remember that Kepler aims to tell us the frequency of Earths, how common are Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits about sun-like stars. With the knowledge Kepler gives us, we will make plans to find local analogs, planets around nearby stars that we can follow up and look at their atmospheres for signs of life.
3: How far away is Kepler-22b?
9: Kepler-22b is about 600 light-years from Earth.
3: Sounds like we're not going there anytime soon.
9: We're not going to go there anytime soon. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay, that's more than hundred, like 150 times farther than the nearest star, so... Uh, That means uh, with our rockets, quick calculation, that's about 15 million year rocket ride. So I I guess we're not going there. Uh, Okay, well, there's been a recent announcement by the Kepler science team. And over the course of the last year and a half, they've come up with something like 2,300 candidate planets. Is there any idea about, you know, what fraction of these candidate planets will turn out to be real planets? Is it the majority, a minority, what?
9: Most of these planets should turn out to be real planets. And we know this because some of the planets get validated or vetted, extra steps are taken to see whether or not they are planets.
3: Well, perhaps you should explain how Kepler finds these planets then. I mean, it's some sort of, well, it's really a kind of remote sensing telescope, isn't it?
9: It is, indeed. Kepler finds planets by the transit method. Planets that go in front of their star, as seen by Kepler, they will cause a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in brightness of that star. So if you think of a star as being constant brightness with time, when the planet goes in front of the star, it will drop in the ratio of the planet-to-star area. For the Earth and Sun, that area would be about one part in 10,000. So Kepler is looking for the tiniest drop, and it is monitoring 150,000 sun-like stars simultaneously. Okay, now why couldn't you have done this from the ground? From the ground, our atmosphere creates a formidable problem. The atmosphere has turbulence. When you look up at the stars and see them twinkling, that twinkling is a problem. We cannot measure precise brightness changes from the ground because of the atmosphere.
3: How far away is Kepler from uh, downtown uh, San Francisco?
9: (laughs) Right now, Kepler is the same distance from Earth that Earth is from the sun.
3: That's incredibly far. And, And you're getting back these data. How often does it send data back to us?
9: It sends data back about once a month.
3: Now, of these thousands of planetary candidates that Kepler has uncovered, some of them are what are called habitable planets, or at least candidate habitable planets. Now, what is meant by habitable? I mean, do they have, you know, shopping malls and, and opera or what?
9: <laughs> the planets of interest that Kepler has found, to be specific, are those planets in the star's habitable zone. You can also think of the habitable zone as the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, but just right, for surface liquid water. All life on Earth requires liquid water, so we're looking for a planet that can have the right temperature for liquid water. Planets are heated by their stars, and therefore it's the planet-star distance that sets whether or not a planet is in the so-called habitable zone. Well,
3: tell me, I mean, how how many planets are habitable planet candidates? I mean, what's the number? Is it 10, 100?
9: Well, we have planets, and let me separate out planets that are in the star's habitable zone from stars that are potentially habitable. Because we believe to be potentially habitable, a planet must be in the habitable zone and be a rocky planet. A planet that has a massive atmosphere or a thick envelope of gas will be too hot at the surface for life because those atmospheres, those massive atmospheres or envelopes, create an incredible greenhouse effect.
3: Let let me ask you this, Sarah. If some aliens on uh, on a planet, say five or six hundred light years from Earth, they had their own Kepler program, maybe a better Kepler program. Maybe they're a hundred or a thousand years beyond us. And they were looking in our direction. And, and they saw that, gosh, the sun would get a little bit dimmer every 365 days. W- what could they learn about the Earth? If you know if they had better, better instruments than we do, what could they learn?
9: Well, if they had better instruments than us, they could learn the mass of the planet. And with the mass and radius of Earth, they would know for sure that Earth was a rocky planet that it wasn't one of these planets that has a massive gas atmosphere or envelope. So they would be excited. However, they would not be able to tell the difference between an Earth and a Venus. Venus and Earth have about the same mass and about the same size. Yet one planet is habitable and one is not. The aliens may go further to try to understand our sun's effect on Earth in terms of the temperature, and they may make a model of the atmosphere to try to understand what the surface temperature on the planet could be.
3: Well, planets seem to be commonplace. Do you find that gratifying, or is it uh, just making us even less significant in the grand scheme of things?
9: If every star indeed has a planet, I find it extremely gratifying because we want to be able to find planets around the very nearest stars so that we can look at their atmospheres and that someday in the future somebody can go there.
3: Well, it's a bit like the Age of Discovery, isn't it? I mean, the beginning of the 16th century when the globe was being mapped, uh... It must be quite exciting to be part of the the small group of people who are, if you will, mapping the nearby cosmos for planets for the first time, and really, I guess, the only time you have to do it. I mean, after you've done that, we know that they're there.
9: Exactly. We do feel that we are setting the stage for future generations, and we do hope that hundreds or a thousand years from now, when people begin interstellar travel, that they will look back upon our 21st society as the first that found those other worlds.
3: Sarah Seeger, thank you so very much for talking with me.
9: It was great talking to you, Seth.
2: Sarah Seeger is a planetary scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and she's a member of NASA's Kepler science team. Well, the Kepler mission has produced a lot of data and enthusiasm from amateur planet hunters who are helping to comb through all that data in the hope of discovering a planet that others have missed. Daryl LaCourse and Tom Jacobs are citizen scientists and members of the Planet Hunters Project.
3: Gentlemen, planet hunters. Uh, This sounds like outdoor activity. What is a planet hunter, Daryl?
8: A planet hunter, in the amateur sense, is someone that uses a crowdsourcing project to go over data from the Kepler satellite that's been run through the pipeline already. What we're doing is looking for possible new Kepler objects of interest. The data is separated into quarters. We review chunks of quarters. It's a blind study, and if you think you see a transit, you mark it. The team later reviews those, and they are passed off. Our first paper, at 10, resulted in two possible new planets. So what
3: you guys are doing is looking at data made publicly available from NASA's Kepler project. Uh, Tom, what could you guys find that NASA couldn't find with their own
4: data reduction team? Well, I think when you're having fun sitting at home looking at these light curves, what you have is you have the luxury to look at these light curves one by one, And from my understanding, the Kepler team, uh, they do not have the luxury of visually looking at these light curves. So, in other words, there are just thousands and thousands and
3: thousands of light curves. They can't handle it all. They bring you guys in. Well, let me cut to the chase on this then. How many planets have been found by planet hunters? How many Planets have been found by amateurs just looking at the data with their eyeballs in the privacy of their own homes. Tom, do you
4: have any idea? Well, Planet Hunters just published a paper where they have two planet—we call them candidates because they're not thoroughly investigated. That takes a lot more ongoing data research. But we have probably another hundred or so eclipsing binaries are in the pipeline and if I may just add that the nice thing about planet hunters is you get a chance to immerse yourself into the science. And believe it or not, looking at the Likers is easy. Mm-hmm. So it's not something where you have to have a background. I don't have a science background, but after a while, you just kind of get the knack of it. It's really about pattern recognition. We as humans, and I think most of us are humans in this room. Don't make <laughs> assumptions, <laughs> time No, <laughs> you know, we're at SETI, so you never know. But I will say one thing. We have a great ability for pattern recognition. Maybe it's from the caveman days. I never know.
3: Let me ask you this. Describe the process. You sit down, right, and, and you know, you turn on your computer. You get some downloaded data, presumably. I mean, how does, it, how does it work? What do you see?
8: The simple answer is you don't need any other materials but your computer and the classification screen. It's entirely up to the user how far they want to take it after the classification screen, which is a blind study. For example, if you classify a koi. Kepler object of interest and you mark it correctly, after the classification is submitted, they will tell you, hey, you found a koi. You spotted it correctly. So they they have to check what you've done. Right. The computer checks as soon as you submit, you'll get some feedback if it's a previously flagged item. If it's not previously flagged by the NASA team and you're interested, you can follow it onto the talk page and post a thread or if previous users have flagged it, you'll often find commentary and discussions and basically us amateurs trying to figure out exactly what we're looking at.
3: Well, finally, guys, you're doing this. uh, We've got one and a half years of Kepler data being released so far. Uh, There'll be another couple of years, and then maybe Kepler will be extended. The mission will be extended. That depends on whether NASA comes up with the money to do that. I've heard from you. You would like it to be extended. You want to keep doing this. Obviously, You find this gratifying, even if you haven't found anything in the data for the first
8: time. I'm going to have to quote one of the godfathers of the mission, Dr. Bill Baruchi, and it's as simple as this. Kepler is revolutionizing the science, and as Bill said, you can't turn it off yet. It would be insane to turn Kepler off early. We need it to go to 2018.
3: Sounds like calling Columbus back two weeks out of Spain. Hey, sorry, don't go any further. We haven't got the money.
4: You know, I would just like to say, Seth, that I personally am very appreciative of the Kepler team of having this relationship with Planet Hunters, where they're willing to send these light curves their way and answer questions to the science team. So, internally grateful that this is even possible. Absolutely, absolutely.
3: Daryl Lacourse, Tom Jacobs, thank you guys for uh, talking with me. Thank you, you bet. Seth.
4: Thanks a lot.
2: Daryl Lacourse and Tom Jacobs are members of Planet Hunters. Well, Seth, the discovery of Kepler-22b is an exciting find for planet hunters. What are the plans for SETI and the SETI telescopes regarding this new planet?
3: Well, of course. We're going to check it out for signals. And in fact, we've already begun doing that uh, over a couple of uh, radio frequency bands. We're going to look at more, and we're going to look at, in fact, all the Kepler planets that have been found.
2: So you're actually saying that you're going to train the telescope on Kepler-22b to see if you could pick up signals of an intelligent being? I mean, isn't that pretty optimistic right now? Scientists are just hypothesizing whether there might be microbial life on the planet.
3: Well, it it is perhaps optimistic, and it's also true that the Kepler-22b could have a lot of life, and none of it is building radio transmitters. But... You know, unless you look, you're not going to find anything. So we're going right ahead. We're going to check out, and as I say, all the Kepler planet candidates, hoping to uh, find a signal that would tell us that at least one of them is inhabited by somebody fairly clever.
2: Now, we heard from Sarah Seeger that this generation probably can't go and visit Kepler-22b, but future generations might.
3: Well, people always count on improved rocket technology, Molly, but I have to tell you, you know, sensors, as we've been talking about in this show, The technology of sensors is improving very rapidly, much more rapidly than our rocket technology. And the way I see it, the way we'll visit Kepler-22B is not in person. We'll just send a, a rocket loaded with sensors, send all the data back, and you can explore that world in the privacy and convenience of your own home.
2: we hope that you've made sense of our program. Thanks to our highly sensible production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and volunteer Jay Weiler.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
2: Your ears have been attuned to sensor sensibility. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well.
3: If you're a podcast listener and you prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations carrying the program.